Hi, I'm Ray, a storyteller, educator, mom, and your host of Homeroom, an international podcast bridging the education gap between the classroom and the living room. Growing up, my single immigrant mom was so busy working multiple jobs to make ends meet, she couldn't afford to give me a lot of her time. So she relied on schools to teach me everything about how to succeed in life. But under-resourced and over-standardized, our one-size-fits-all education system had other priorities. In this liminal space of unmet expectations, I fell into a blind spot. Homeroom is my attempt to figure out why. In this first season, I speak with people in all walks of life from around the world about their own experiences with their education systems. I want to know what worked, what didn't, and what ideas they have on improving it for a next generation. In this episode, I speak with Lizette, a former public school teacher, librarian, author, and now founder of a micro school based in Los Angeles, California, about the importance of teaching children from a trauma-informed perspective. We talk about the problems and issues we have with mass education, teaching to the test, and from a top-down approach. We also discuss the lack of connection students feel with their teachers and peers and how the micro-schooling revolution can be one solution to raising better, adjusted students. Here is our edited conversation. Well, first of all, I want to say that I have my master's in education and that in a way has hindered my role as an educator, um, how I'm able to process information because of the training, the conventional training that I have received and all of the schooling that I have participated in. So with that said, a lot of my background um, has been incredibly meaningful. I'm so grateful. And at the same time, I've had to unlearn so that I could relearn and then now I can teach my students in a more effective way. Um, and someone, you know, I am someone that deals with anxiety and this is, you know, an ongoing thing. And that has completely transformed the way that I view spaces. I've always been interested in um, creating, creating calming spaces, meaningful spaces. Uh, I would have probably gone into interior design had I not gone into education. Uh, so creating a space where my students are inspired is absolutely kind of the first step that I take when approaching, um, any type of project, knowing that I have kids that, um, are neurodivergent, you know, my sister also has special needs and there was a sensory overload for her in so many ways at home and watching therapists work with her, um, coming in to do, you know, play therapy. Um, I also have recently been kind of introduced to the whole Montessori method and how it's really simple. Um, it's, it's really, it's really beautiful. And I say simple, um, in the best way possible, everything is so natural and, and I gravitate towards that. Um, so knowing that this is actually really healing for kids, um, to be able to listen to music, um, while they're while they're working on math, or maybe they need to just like fidget, or they need to run around. They need to release that energy, 
And so personally, I'll, you know, I, I've taught my son to do planks or to, you know, whatever he needs to do to get that anxiety or that frustration out um, is, is something that I truly, truly appreciate. And so building the classroom with a trauma-informed mindset, um, because we all have experienced trauma, you know, to a certain degree, and just knowing that there's ways to go ahead and incorporate all of it so that it is therapeutic and it is going to help our students. That, that's been something beautiful for me to experience. That sounds really incredible. And um, I just wanted to say, like, so I'm recently, so when I say recent, I mean, over the, the last, like, three years, I've been realizing that I'm neurodivergent and mm -hmm. that I'm possibly on the autism spectrum um, also. And that has kind of been, like, such a relief because I spent my entire life thinking, there's something wrong with me. I am different. I'm somehow very different from my peers, but I don't know why and I don't know how. And so because this feels very shameful and embarrassing, I'm going to keep it to myself. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I kind of went my entire life not having the like help or assistance that I needed uh, to actually be fully engaged in my learning experience. And it wasn't until I went into teaching um, and like learning more about learning styles that I was like, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. It's there's something yeah. wrong with society. And we're yeah. not we're not accommodating like either the majority or at least half. We're not um, meeting their needs. And so everything that you say is getting me so excited that like we're entering this era of finally like leading with the child, you know, okay. and um, so I would love to hear your yeah. perspective on what those specific hindrances were and what those specific challenges were. Yeah. Well, to start off, um, I, you know, I grew up you know, from kindergarten to, to eighth grade, so nine years attending a Catholic school. And um, I was raised by a single mom. I'm, you know, a Latina woman, just trying to figure out my role in, in the whole field of education. And I am completely an empath. I mean, I feel everything. I absorb it all. Um, and you can tell uh, there's no, you know, hiding it. It's I, I wear my my emotions on my sleeve and, and that's just what it is. Um, so kind of having a stricter um, educational experience. Uh, for example, we had um, most of our nuns came from Ireland and they spent you know, years and years kind of reaching um, this community, you know, that I live in, in, in Los Angeles County. And they did their absolute best with everything that they knew. Um, they also didn't have an educational background, um, but they started a school and it was through the archdiocese. And I remember just experiencing the most beautiful literature classes and grammar was difficult for me, but then 
I somehow came out on the other side and I ended up enjoying it so much. Um, so that was my background. And then fast forward to, you know, high school, then I'm in a public school setting, completely overwhelmed, not knowing really anyone. Um, so I start joining clubs and, um, you know, student council and, and drill team and sports and whatever I can to meet people. And that happens. Um, but I still feel the lack of education, like something is missing. I had this really conventional, you know, traditional model of schooling. Then I'm over here kind of trying to figure out, you know, where do I fit in and how do I go about this and still feeling as though something is lacking. Then I go to college and the same thing. And I'm actually one of, I think I was the only Hispanic person in my English class. Mm. So talk about, you know, a cultural overwhelm and shock. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it was primarily a Caucasian community. Uh, and that was, that was intimidating to me because I don't feel as I was prepared for the rigor of uh, university English classes mm -hmm. at all. And yet here I am just someone that loves reading. I just love you know, being able to do character analysis and I love writing. And so um, with that said, the master's degree came, right? The, the clear credential came, all of that came. And yet I knew that I was relational at my core. Mm. And I knew that how I wanted to teach had to go along that line. If not, I wouldn't be true to who I actually am. And yet there was, uh, I remember there was this one principal and she very specifically told me, you know, um, like you don't smile until I think it was like the sayings, like you don't smile until December. And that was odd for me, just kind of like, you know, you lay down the law and this is how it is. And, and classroom management, you know, is of the utmost importance. And that, that, was not who I was. And so I felt extremely uncomfortable. And my students knew that I cared for them deeply. And so I didn't have to like lay down the law at all. They reciprocated that because they knew that I cared. Um, so that was definitely, definitely a hindrance because I don't want to be operating in a system that can't smile until December. I don't want to have to be so focused on classroom management that I'm not able to connect, there is a disconnect. And that's why students don't learn well. Right. And that's why we're not reaching our neurodivergent students yes. or our neurotypical, uh, you can't see me, but in quotes, neurotypical, whatever that means, right? Students, at the end of the day, we're all human beings. We need to feel seen, known, cared for, and connected. And if we're lacking that, then our education system, we both know it, is not what it needs to be. So that's just a part of the hindrance. <laughs> oh my goodness. I just have like full body goosebumps listening to yeah. you. I can relate so much. And um, something you said uh, made me think of a story um, and how you said like your principal tells you like you don't smile until December. And um, so I have worked in many different like public school settings, um, you know, not 
like as a homeroom teacher or, or like um like a legitimate class teacher like I, I taught art and was like multimedia resource those kinds of things um, a legitimate teacher yes <laughs> a legitimate teacher. thank you 110% 110% we need art we need art yes but you know like I feel like um society doesn't really value those kinds of skills and especially in classroom settings you know that's always like the first subject to be cut from funding and um so you know i always have gotten the message that like art is sort of um supplementary it's it's complementary but it's never a main stay it's never an important subject to keep mm -hmm. and so yeah and so i love that you're like no it is totally a legitimate subject. It is. Yes, it is. it is. And I remember thinking like um, a lot of my like principals or like supervisors, um, they were very much on measuring children's success based on compliance yes. standards and uh, based on these like management uh, top down approaches. Yes. And I feel like that's kind of what you're talking about here. Right. And I wanted to know, like, you know, the way that we assess student success in the past is always like on speed and accuracy and mm -hmm. um, turning things out in a very quick amount of time. And I was just wondering, like, how do you measure student success in your micro school knowing that relationships is what allows our students to succeed and you know what that measurement uh, the metric is that you use absolutely um so for me specifically i think i think i need to kind of preface this with uh you know i've shared that i am an empath and knowing you know how micro schools right now are kind of being formed they take on the personality really of kind of like the founders you know what the what the tenants what the core principles are um that are, are specifically important to the group of people who are founding them the families that are involved um they take that all into consideration you know as as micro schools are are being created um, so our micro school, because I believe that this is incredibly important, um, our micro school focuses on nurturing critical thinking. I want students to be able to not only take in media and, you know, consume and read and all of the things that they're going to do in their lifetime um, without thinking critically of what it is that they're digesting. So that's, that's a very important principle that we have, but then also developing a growth mindset. Um, so we, uh, my husband and I were, were actually foster parents and we adopted um, our son back in 2017 and we're currently fostering a little boy, he's six years old. And, you know, we've, we've taught both boys, like, you know, they're like, we can't do it, it's too hard right? Like tying their shoelaces. Tying their shoelaces has actually like been quite the feat because like no pun. <laughs> I, I heard the pun. Yeah, yeah, there you go. A lot of the shoes are Velcro, 
because parents are no longer teaching their kids how to tie their shoes. Um, so that's, that's, that's interesting. Like, you know, this is too hard. You know, they'll say like, yeah, it is. It's pretty hard. And you, you, you're right. You can't do it yet. You can't, you can't do it yet. So for example, um, this, this is a, this is a really interesting story. Uh, we, we had a student and he had actually never been to like, I, I would say he actually, he was never really exposed to, um, learning about like the transatlantic slave trade or, um, like the Holocaust. Um, so he had a lot of, um, implicit bias and he just, he didn't realize like the trajectory that his life was, was moving towards. And as we were reading about, um, you know, about the slave trade, um, and about enslaved people, um, he actually was really upset that they could not free themselves. And he, he couldn't understand in that moment, like, why? Why mm. couldn't they just fight back? Why couldn't they come together mm. and fight back? There was a lot more, you know, of them than there were of the perpetrators. Um, and so another student, you know, turned on his his iPad and, and showed him like, hey, they were actually chained and it wasn't possible. They would, they would get beaten or even killed. So it was one student explaining to another student. And in that moment, like that's, that's critical thinking. Like, let me go ahead and like research and figure this out. And let me try to show and like explain to this peer of mine and, and, and that kid who, who made the initial comment, he started realizing that, and he, he actually had a lot of angst. I should kind of backtrack and that he had a lot of angst happening within himself. So he was sort of identifying a bit more at that point in his life with the perpetrator, right? So that, talk about like, how do you convey that to a parent? This is what's happening with your kid. And we're going to go ahead and read. We actually ended up, he chose, which I was really grateful about that. He chose the hate you give. He ended up having his first black friend at our school. We Zoomed with the Holocaust survivor after reading the diary of Anne Frank. We went to the Museum of Tolerance. It was this intentional, concentrated effort for the whole entire year, actually two years of helping to build and shape this boy's character. And that's, so that's how we are able then to communicate the progress. He went from this to now his best friend is a black girl and they talk all the time. <laughs> like what? That's really incredible. And so like, how do you document this process? Like for me, you know, like my background is in documentary filmmaking and I'm just like, yeah. this is a beautiful film. I would love to share that film with the, the yeah. parents, but like, how do you actually um, share the gravity of that transformation with yeah. the parents in a way where they're like, oh, I'm gonna keep sending my child to the school. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that they, 
they see the transformation happening and it's gradual. I mean, it's, you know, when we started in 2021, it, I was, to tell you the truth, I was, I was absolutely like appalled and shocked at some of the things that were coming out in the classroom, you know, like, wait a minute. I don't like, where are you getting this from? And, and, and he, he's a, he was a boy that spent a lot of time on TikTok. And his parents knew that and they knew that they wanted something different for him. And I'm not, you know, it's, it's, there's nothing against TikTok, but the specific videos that he was watching um, definitely tended towards uh, a more bigoted, you know, uh, more, more bigoted content. Um, done in, in a joking way that was completely inappropriate. And so he didn't realize that he was part of this bubble, that he was actually part of the problem until it was brought to his attention. And, you know, that was something that I, I was not going to let go. Um, my, my, uh, my thesis uh, for my master's program was um, teaching students Holocaust literature as a means of evoking compassion. You know, and that's that's literally what I I have dedicated my life to making sure that students are explicitly taught about compassion and how to embody empathy and then take action. So we could be as empathetic as we want, but if we don't take action, then it stagnates, right? Then how are we actually um, helping to create a better place? So so that's where that's where we landed. And, and his parents saw the transformation. You know, this boy is lashing out and he is saying things that would probably have him expelled at another school. Um, and, I, and I was really trying to not be as reactive as I have a tendency to be and to be more responsive and incorporating everything I learned, you know, as a, as a foster parent. But but using the trauma-informed training and knowing that this was learned behavior, that he didn't even realize really what he was saying and that it was part of systemic injustice. So, so a lot of that being taught to him step by step by step. And now I am so, so, so grateful that he's in a place where as he has you know, he becomes an adult. He's not, he's not the same boy that we came into contact with, you know, so that's just one story, but that's how we're able to kind of measure. And then the parents come and tell us, it's almost like the reverse. Instead of us delivering the metrics, they're delivering it back to us. They're telling us we see growth here, 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 and here. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's amazing. Like that is a really productive, and I think in my opinion, a very successful feedback loop, right? So you're, um, because I think like as teachers, like our responsibility is to sort of like introduce stimuli to get people thinking about how they react to this stimulus. And um, like you said, you know, when we're introducing them to history and things that have happened and things that are important um, to know, uh, to live in society and be a part of society, to be a part of a healthy society, 
is to sort of have this kind of empathy for other people and knowing what people have been through. And um, I think it's really important to have these really difficult, crucial conversations in safe spaces. And the fact that, right, I'm sure it takes an incredible amount of restraint on our parts to be in tune with our emotion um, and not be reactive, like you said, Um, but to kind of help them shape their worldview by saying, I know this is where you are right now, but but let's try considering it from this perspective and let's look at it from this other perspective. How would you feel if you were in this situation and this was happening to you? And that's so transformational. And I'm also now thinking about at scale. Like, um, I think I've, I've spoken to enough people now where people are like, you know, you cannot do this in mass education where there's like hundreds of students because how do you take that much time to sit with a student and help them through this transformation if you have like thousands of students? You just can't, right? It's yeah. like, um, like a, it's kind of like a, you know, mom and pop bakery versus like, um, you know, a really like cheesecake factory or something, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a highly personalized setting. It's a learning environment that's co-created by students, parents, and teachers. And that's, that's something that cannot be, you cannot have the same exact educational plan because we do have, you know, an IEP of sorts for each student, (laughs) neurotypical or not, neurodivergent or not, everyone is getting it because it has to be that way. Because there's no person, I wouldn't have the same um, educational plan as my husband would have had when he was younger or my best friend or for, you know, you or, you know, we're just, we're all different. And when you go through a teacher education program, they teach you all about differentiated instruction. Like, oh, if you have an English language learner, right? If you have, you know, a student who is, dyslexic or, you know, runs the gamut. Every single student deserves, again, to be seen, known, heard, understood, and connected with, period, period. And so that's what's happening and scaling that. So I would imagine in an ideal world, instead of a teacher education program offering two options, you could either work at a private school or you could work at a public school, they would offer a third option. Higher ed would have an opportunity for students to, for, uh, students to create their own micro schools. I, I can see how amazing that would be in really recruiting amazing talent, completely dedicated, innovative. Like if you were to open up your own micro school, it might be a bit more art-based. And the kids that are drawn to that they would have a beautiful, safe space to call their own, right? So just making it widely available throughout every university that offers a teacher education program, like, why is that not an option? Oh, my gosh. And I'm wondering, like, how much more freedom you might have when you only have a smaller amount of students, like, say, six students, six to ten students. 
Um, and I'm curious, how do you actually do that? How do you differentiate instruction when um, all of your students have, you know, individualized education plans and what do they even look like? So it's a two part question. I'm really curious, how do you create the individualized education plans? Are they are they created before a semester or are they um, constantly yeah. adapting and or how do you how do you do that within group instruction time? Right. So this is a question that I actually um, get, you know, quite often, especially because um, I think in in terms of defining a micro school, um, kind of, you know, the definition has been like a modern spin on the one room schoolhouse. Right. So this is something that dates back a really long time. And you had one teacher typically, and you had students ranging from, you know, all ages and, and they would learn and it was effective. And, and so now we have compartmentalized students so much so that, you know, God forbid they should be kind of in a different grade level for a subject or, you know, or, or not be at pace with everyone else. Um, and this, this idea of everyone is falling behind, right? Like the pandemic caused everyone to fall behind. And, um, and yes, of course, like there, there, there was so much that went on with distance learning and, um, and it was difficult. So given that, but but definitely not this idea. I think when we when we say falling behind, it definitely is giving kids the idea that they have to hurry and they have to catch up because they're again not enough. And then they become adults that are in therapy because they feel as though they're not enough. Okay, 100%. so we really need, <laughs> we really need to stop giving that message to our students that they are behind, that they kind of didn't, they don't pass. They don't pass, right? Because whether it's an essay or it's really tough math problems, you're not enough. It is a soul deep situation that begins within, within them. And this is something that absolutely needs to be addressed. So Knowing that, then how do we how do we teach all of these kids that are different ages, are showing a different capacity for subjects, different interests? Um, we literally just lean into that. So it starts off with very kind of the the, the plans start off with very kind of basic, um, you know, kind of like a basic framework. And everyone has it. So, for example, you, you know, you have all these different subjects um, and we do a lot of interdisciplinary cross-curricular work where things are blurred a lot of the times. Like these lines are blurred. So we could be learning about like aerodynamics and go indoor skydiving. And then we're also looking at the design of the outfit that's being used and in a sense, incorporating fashion into that mix. Um, so a lot of the lines are blurred for us. Um, and while the kids are still learning the subjects, they're not so divided. They're not so separated mm. to the point where like, 
I hate math. Mm -hmm. Like, well, math is interwoven in us making pancakes and studying some culinary art, right? And then we're also gathering and we're talking about the process. So that's also like interpersonal skills that happen. And then you're presenting. So it's public speaking, right? And then we're probably going to be incorporating something that happened, you know, with like food from back in the days. So and then you're bringing history in. So it's really, it's really, really mixed in together. I love that so much. So we started off as a, as a holistic tutoring company, because um, I really believe we're not just teaching the mind, we're not just teaching academics. Uh, I wanted to incorporate breathing exercises. And, you know, we do have a lot of children that come in um, with a lot of anxiety, um, with a lot of depression. Um, maybe their parents just got separated. I mean, you name it, it's, it's there. Um, there was a, this one boy, he actually slammed his laptop down and he was having the worst day. Then he opened it back up again. We were able to play some games and then get on with our, with our lesson. You know, so it's that connection again. It always goes back to connection, no matter what it is. It always goes back to connection. So, um, so really looking at what it is that that kind of kids need. So we start off really, you know, kind of like basic, and then it's like a paragraph, or it's a sorry, it's like a, a an essay. You know, you start off like really wide, and then you kind of going narrow and, and, and detailed. That's what it is. It's an upside down triangle. And, and it is being adapted as we go because parents are constantly, there's this communication, you know, back and forth all the time and it's wonderful. And then kids are, are, are chiming in with what they would like to see. And so my, my son, he really happens to like um, science and I'm definitely not like, again, because it was so compartmentalized for me, I, I would say like, I'm not really a science person. When in reality, I think I really like science. I just, I just was not nurtured necessarily in that area. I was nurtured more so in English, you know, literature and grammar. And, and, and that's what I ended up pursuing. However, he absolutely loves experiments and he had an opportunity to discover um, Louis Pasteur. Um, he's considered like the father of microbiology. And at this time, our son was in second grade. So, you know, we take out a few of the microscopes and we have all of the kids kind of check out, you know, like dragonfly wings under the microscope and all these cool things. And, and he's looking at it and he just didn't know that there was a whole microscopic world that existed. And so that was really special for him. And then now he is like, I, I want to, I want to become a pediatric surgeon, you know? So we bought him an anatomy kit. And I, on my downtime, I'll binge watch Grey's Anatomy and half of the time I'm covering his eyes or like fast forwarding it or whatever. Um, so he sees some of these surgeries and he's, uh, he's about to be in fourth grade. And it's wild to me that we limit children 
And, and in reality, it's because we're projecting our own self-limiting beliefs onto them. But if we just stepped out of the way and allowed them to be, they would really surprise us. I know I'm continually surprised, you know, and so it's easy to teach them because it's student led and I'm following them and I'm guiding them. Um, and we're covering so much more than we could have possibly imagined, um, far more than what is being covered in, in, in a traditional school setting. But that's been my role in education. Like, because I come with, you know, an anxiety disorder and I, and I come, you know, being an empath, I'm highly sensitive. I come with all these things. They could be viewed as deterrence. And those have actually proven to be some of my superpowers. And so letting my kids know that, like, the world will tell you otherwise. But who you are literally is what is making you so incredible. Like, we need you. We need you with all your quirks and with all your whatever, right? With all of your beauty, we need you. Thank you so much for tuning in to our conversation. My mother and grandparents formed a lot of early observations about me, which they shared freely and often in my presence. One of these insights was that I was special, gifted, talented. A couple of decades ago, my mother even told me that when my school recommended that they place me in a class for children with special gifts, my mother declined because she didn't want me to be separated from the rest of my peers. This felt conflicting because, from my memory, I did poorly in academic subjects like math, science, history, just about every field that was considered valuable to society. And because of these two contrasting views about my performance, I really struggled to form an accurate picture of my abilities which seriously impacted my self-esteem in a negative way. When I was about 30, I started working as an instructor for the Gifted and Talented program at a public elementary school. I noticed that many of my students had parents who were really invested in their education. Sometimes I saw these parents come in and out of school, but other times I recognized their involvement just by looking at how my students' academic planners were organized. I could tell that someone was making sure every night that their children had a plan for next steps. I tried to remember if someone did this for me, but nothing really surfaced. During the second year I was there, I helped to administer SAGES, the national test that would evaluate whether a student would be admitted into the program or not. While looking through the booklets, repressed memories from my childhood flooded my head. Why did these visual reasoning problems look so familiar? I wondered. Why did these diagrams remind me of taking a test by myself in a dark and quiet room? Why did these pictures recall another large room with colorful walls where 
a Caucasian adult asked me questions I couldn't really understand. I went back to my childhood schools and gathered my official academic records. I interviewed peers about their earliest memories of me studying with them. I spoke with adults about their observations of my talents and growth trajectory. I even interrogated my mother about every conversation and conference she had with my childhood teachers. And after almost a decade of this long, ongoing investigation, it finally occurred to me that the special program my teachers had recommended to me in elementary school was probably one for students with special needs. For the learning disabilities, I could never articulate that I had. For several years after making this realization, I was upset with my mother for not having gotten me the special attention I needed to be more academically successful. But after having so many conversations with people about their own experiences with their education journeys on this podcast, I'm finally seeing the wisdom in my mother's decision. Maybe the answer isn't to separate the gifted or those with special needs from the majority, but instead to recognize that everyone has their own gifts and that our job as educators is to personalize a learning plan for everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If any part of this episode resonated with you, please connect with us on social media at the links in the show notes. And if you'd like to share your own education journey with us on this podcast, please send me a DM on Instagram. 